You are listening to RudolfSteinerAudio.com. If you are listening to the podcast of this, it is located at RudolfSteiner.Podbean.com. Please consider becoming a patron. As well, there are two publishing houses, SteinerBooks.org in America and RudolfSteinerPress.com in England, who are the sole publishers of Steiner into English and have given me permission to do these recordings. Please consider patronizing them as well. You are listening to RudolfSteinerAudio.com. This is a reading of a collection of lectures by Rudolf Steiner entitled Spiritualism, Madame Blavatsky, and Theosophy. And this is part three of that collection entitled Hidden Aspects of Occult History. This is lecture 10 in the total collection. Entitled The Founding of the Theosophical Society, given in Dornach on October 11th, 1915. Today I would like to be allowed to include some personal references among matters of objective history. Ellipsis. First I want to speak about a particular experience connected with our movement. You know that we began by linking ourselves outwardly only with the Theosophical Society. We founded the so-called German section of that society in the autumn of 1902 in Berlin. In 1904, prominent members of the Theosophical Society came to visit us in various towns in Germany. The episode that I want to start with occurred during one of these visits. In the spring of 1904, the first edition of my book titled Theosophy had just been published, and the periodical titled Lucifer Gnosis was appearing. In it I had published articles dealing with the problem of Atlantis and the character of the Atlantean epoch. These articles were afterward published as a separate volume entitled in the German Unsere Atlantischen Vorfahren, Our Atlantean Ancestors. The articles contained a number of communications about the Atlantean world and the earlier so-called Lemurian epoch. A member highly respected in the Theosophical Society had read these articles dealing with Atlantis and asked me a question, which I want to mention as a noteworthy experience. This member of the Theosophical Society, who had taken part in the proceedings when the Society was founded by Madame Blavatsky, and therefore had participated fully in the activities of the Society, asked, quote, How was this information about the world of Atlantis obtained? This question was very significant, because until that moment the member knew only the methods by which such information was usually obtained in the Theosophical Society, namely by a certain kind of mediumistic investigation. Information published in the Theosophical Society at that time was based upon research connected in a certain way with mediumship. A person was put into a kind of mediumistic state. We cannot call it a trance. It was a mediumistic state. Then, conditions were established that made it possible for that person, although not in the state of ordinary consciousness, to communicate certain information about matters beyond the reach of ordinary consciousness. That is how the communications were made at that time. 
This member of the Theosophical Society, who thought that information about prehistoric events could be gained only in this way, therefore inquired whom, among us, we could use as a medium for such investigations. As I had naturally refused to adopt this method of research and had insisted from the outset upon strictly individual investigation, and as what I had discovered at that time was the result entirely of my own personal research, the questioner did not understand me at all. He did not understand that it was quite a different matter from anything that had been done before in the Theosophical Society. The path I had appointed for myself, however, was this, to reject all earlier ways of investigation and, admittedly, by means of supersensible perception, to investigate by making use only of what can be revealed to the one who is himself the investigator. In accordance with the position I have to take in the spiritual movement, no other course is possible for me than to practice rigorously those methods of investigation appropriate for the modern world and for modern humanity. There is a very significant difference, you see, between the methods of investigation practiced in spiritual science and those that were practiced in the Theosophical Society. All communications received by that society from the spiritual world, including, for example, the ones given in Scott Elliott's book on Atlantis, came entirely in the way described, because that alone was considered authoritative and objective. The introduction of the spiritual scientific direction of our work was, from the very beginning, something entirely new in the Theosophical Society. It took account of modern scientific methods that must be elaborated and developed to make ascent to the spiritual realms possible. This discussion, which took place in 1904, was significant. It showed how greatly spiritual scientific practice differed from what was being practiced by the rest of the Theosophical Society. It showed, too, that what we have in spiritual science was unknown in the Theosophical Society at that time, and that the Theosophical Society continued to work with the methods that had been adopted as a compromise between the exotericists and the esotericists. Such was the inevitable result of the developments I described yesterday. I said that seership gradually died away, and that only a few isolated seers remained in whom mediumistic states could be induced, and from whom some information might be obtained. On this basis, quote, occult orders, close quote, as they were called, came into being. In these orders, there were many who had been initiated, but there were no seers. In the prevailing atmosphere of materialism, they had to cultivate and elaborate methods that had long been popular. Instruments for research had to be sought among persons in whom mediumistic faculties, that is to say atavistic clairvoyance, could still be developed and produce results. 
In these circles there were also extensive teachings and also symbols. Those individuals who wished to engage in actual research, however, were obliged to rely on the help of persons possessing atavistic clairvoyance. Such mediumistic methods were continued in the Theosophical Society, and the compromise of which I spoke yesterday really amounted to nothing other than that in the lodges and orders experiments were made whereby spiritual influences might be projected into the world. The desire was to demonstrate that influences from the spiritual world actually influence human beings. Procedures adopted in esoteric schools had thus been brought into action. This attempt was a fiasco. It had been expected that the mediums would bring to light genuine spiritual laws prevailing in the surroundings. However, the only result was that nearly all the mediums fell into the error of supposing that everything emanated from the dead. They embellished this into communications alleged to have been made to them by the dead. This led to a very definite consequence. Older members will be able to think back to the earliest period of the Theosophical Society and remember the literature produced under its aegis. If they do so, they will find that the astral world, the life immediately after death, was described by Mrs. Besant in books that merely reproduced what Blavatsky's secret doctrine contained, or was to be read in books by Ledbetter. The secret doctrine, in fact, was the origin of everything that was given out concerning human life between death and a new birth. If you compare this with what is said in my book, Theosophy, about the soul world and the spirit world, you find considerable differences. This is precisely because, in regard to these domains, the methods of investigation were different. All the methods of research employed in the Theosophical Society, even including those used for investigating the life of the dead, originated from the procedures I have spoken of. So you see, what the Theosophical Society had to offer the world to begin with was in a certain respect a continuation of the attempt made previously by the occultists. In what other respect this was not the case we shall hear in a moment. Taken as a whole, however, it was a continuation of the attempt that since the middle of the 19th century had been the outcome of the compromise made between the exotericists and the esotericists, except that later on things were made rather more esoteric by the Theosophical Society. Whereas the previous attempt had been to present the mediums to the world, the members of the Theosophical Society preferred to work only in their inner circle and merely to give out the results. That was an important difference, for in this approach people were going back to a method of investigation established as a universal custom by the various orders before the middle of the 19th century. I mention this because I must stress that with the advent of our spiritual science, an entirely new method, one that takes full account of the work and attitude of modern science, was introduced into the occult movement. As I said, the compromise 
between the exotericists and the esotericists to convince the materialistic world through mediums of all types that a spiritual world exists was a fiasco. It was a fiasco because the mediums always spoke of a world that under the existing conditions simply could not be accessible to them, namely the world of the dead. The mediums spoke of inspirations claimed to have been received from a world in which the dead lived. The situation was that the attempt made by the exotericists and the esotericists had not achieved the result they had really desired. How had such a state of affairs come about? What was the result of the remarkable attempt that had been made as a result of the compromise? The result was that initiates of a certain kind wrested power from the hands of those who had made the compromise. The initiates of the extreme left wing had taken possession of the proceedings. They acquired great influence because what was obtained through the mediums did not spring from the realm of the dead at all, but from the realm of the living, from initiates who had put themselves either in distant or close rapport with the mediums. Because everything was done through these initiates and through the mediums, it was colored by the theories of those who wished to get the mediums under their control. Those among the exotericists and esotericists who had made the compromise wanted to convince people that there is indeed a spiritual world. That is what they wanted to impress. But when those who thought themselves capable of holding the guiding reins let them slip, the occultists of the extreme left wing took possession of them and endeavored through the mediums, if I may use this tautology, to communicate their theories and their views of the world. For those who had made the compromise for the good of humanity, the position was disastrous because they felt more and more strongly that false teachings about the supersensible were being brought into the world. This was what was happening as occultism was developing in the 1840s, 1850s, and even the 1860s. As long as deliberation still continued in the circles of honest occultists, the situation was sinister. For the further the occultists inclined to the left, the less they were concerned to promote what alone is justifiable, namely the universal human. In occultism, people belong to the, in quotes, left, when they try to achieve some ultimate end with the help of what they know of occult teaching. They belong to the, in quotes, right, when they desire that end purely for its own sake. The middle party was in favor of making exoteric the esoteric knowledge needed to promote the interests of the universal human today. Those who belong to the extreme left are those who combine special aims of their own with what they promulgate as occult teaching. Individuals are on the left to the extent that they pursue special aims, lead people to the spiritual world, give them all kinds of demonstrations of it, and illicitly instill in them, in quotes, promptings that simply help to bring these special aims to fulfillment. The leading circle of modern initiates was faced with the situation. It was realized that control had fallen into the hands of people who were pursuing their own special aims. Such was the state of affairs, confronting the esotericists 
and exotericists who had made the compromise referred to. Then it was, in quotes, heard that an event of importance for the further continuation of spiritual development on the earth must be at hand. The expression heard may not be quite exact, but absolutely exact words cannot be found because one is dependent on external language. Besides, communication among occultists is different from anything that external language is capable of describing. I can describe this event only as follows. The individual orders, in their research, had preferred for a long time to make less use of female mediums. In the strict orders, where it was desired to take the right standpoint, on the other hand, no female mediums were ever used for obtaining revelations from the spiritual worlds. Now the female organism is adapted by nature to preserve atavistic clairvoyance longer than the male organism. Whereas male mediums were becoming almost unknown, female mediums were still to be found, and a great number were used while the compromise still held. But now, a personality who possessed mediumistic faculties in the very highest degree came into the occultist's field of observation. This was Madame H. P. Blavatsky, a personality especially adapted by certain subconscious parts of her organism to draw a great deal, a very great deal, from the spiritual world. Consider what possibilities this opened up for the world. At one of the most crucial points in the development of occultism, a personality appeared who, through the peculiar nature of her organism, was able to draw many, many things from the spiritual world by means of her subconscious faculties. Any occultists of that time who were alert to the signs of the times had to draw the following conclusion. Here, now, at just the right moment, a personality had appeared who by her peculiar organic constitution could produce the strongest evidence of the ancient traditional teaching that existed among the occult orders only in the form of symbols. It was certainly true that here was a personality who simply, because of her organic makeup, afforded the possibility of demonstrating again many things that had long been known only through tradition. This was the fact confronting occultists just after the fiasco that had led to a veritable impasse. Let us be quite clear on the point. Blavatsky was regarded as a personality from whom, as from an electrically charged Leyden jar, the electric sparks, occult truths, could be produced. Any occultists of that time, who were alert to the signs of the times, had to draw the following conclusion. Here, now, at just the right moment, a personality had appeared who by her peculiar organic constitution could produce the strongest evidence of the ancient traditional teaching that existed among the occult orders only in the form of symbols. It was certainly true that here was a personality who simply, because of her organic makeup, afforded the possibility of demonstrating again many things that had long been known only through tradition. 
This was the fact confronting occultists just after the fiasco that had led to a veritable impasse. Let us be quite clear on the point. Blavatsky was regarded as a personality from whom, as from an electrically charged Leiden jar, the electric sparks, occult truths, could be produced. The right-wing occultists who, in conjunction with the middle part, had agreed to the compromise, could well suppose that something very significant could come from this personality. At the same time, the left-wing could also conclude with assurance that something extremely effective in the world could be achieved with the help of this personality. Thus a real battle was waged around her, on one side with the honest purpose of substantiating much of what the initiates knew, on the other side for the sake of far-reaching special aims. I have often referred to the early periods in the life of H. P. Blavatsky and have known that to begin with attempts were made to get a great deal of knowledge from her. But in a comparatively short time the situation rapidly changed, owing to the fact that she soon came into the sphere of those who belonged, as it were, to the left. H. P. Blavatsky was very well aware of what she herself was able to see, for she was especially significant in that she was not simply a passive medium, but had a colossal memory for everything that revealed itself to her from the higher worlds. Nevertheless, she was, inevitably, under the influence of certain personalities when she wanted to evoke manifestations from the spiritual world. And so she always referred to what really ought to what ought really to have been left aside. She always referred to the in quotes Mahatmas. They may be there in the background, but this is not a factor when it is a question of furthering the interests of humanity. And so it was not long before H. P. Blavatsky was forced to face a decision. A hint came to her from a quarter belonging to the side of the left that she was a personality of key importance. She knew very well what it was that she saw. But she was not aware of how significant she was as a personality. This was first disclosed to her by the left wing. But she was fundamentally honest by nature, and after this hint had been given her from a quarter of which at the beginning she could hardly have approved because of her fundamental honesty, she tried, on her side, to reach a kind of compromise with an occult brotherhood in Europe. Something very fine might have resulted from this, because through her great gift of mediumship she would have been able to furnish confirmations of really phenomenal importance in connection with what was known to the initiates only from theories and symbolism. But she was not only thoroughly honest, she was also what is called in Germany, in quotes, Frechdachs, close quote, a cheeky creature. And she certainly was. She had in her nature a certain trait that is particularly common in those inclined to mediumship, namely a lack of consistency in external behavior. Thus there were moments when she could be very audacious, and in one of these fits of audacity she imposed terms that could not be fulfilled on the occult brotherhood that had decided to make the experiment with her.
but since she knew that a great deal could be achieved through her instrumentality, she decided to take up the matter with other brotherhoods. So she approached an American brotherhood. This American brotherhood was one in which the majority had always wavered between the right and the left, but at all events had the prospect of discovering things of tremendous significance concerning the spiritual worlds. Now, this was the period when other brothers of the left were showing intense interest in H.P. Blavatsky. Already at that time, these left-wing brothers had their own special interests. At the moment, I do not propose to speak about these interests. If it were necessary, I could do so at some future time. For the present, it is enough to say they were brothers who had their special interests, which were above all of a strongly political character. They envisaged the possibility of achieving something of a political nature in America by means of persons who had first been given an occult preparation. The consequence was that, at a moment when H. P. Blavatsky had already acquired an untold amount of occult knowledge through having worked with the American Lodge, she had to be expelled from it because it was discovered that there was something political in the background. So, Things couldn't continue. The situation was now extremely difficult, tremendously difficult, for what had been undertaken in order to call the world's attention to the existence of a spiritual world had, in a certain respect, now to be withdrawn by the serious occultists because it had been a fiasco. It was necessary to show that no reliance could be placed on what was being presented by spiritualism in spite of the fact that it had many adherents. For spiritualism had become only materialistic, was sheer dilettantism. The only scholarly persons who concerned themselves with it were those who wanted to get information in an external materialistic way about a spiritual world. H. P. Blavatsky, furthermore, had made it clear to the American Lodge on her departure, that she had no intention whatsoever of withholding what she knew from the world. And she knew a great deal, because she was able to remember afterward what had been conveyed through her. What audacity she had! Good advice is costly, as the saying goes. What was to be done? Something now happened that I have referred to on various occasions, something called, quote, occult imprisonment. Madame Blavatsky was put into occult imprisonment. Through certain acts and machinations of a kind that can be performed only by certain brotherhoods, who allow themselves to engage in illicit arts, certain brothers succeeded in compelling Madame Blavatsky to live for a time in a world in which all her occult knowledge was driven inward. Think of it in this way. The occult knowledge was in her aura, As the result of certain processes that were set in operation, everything in this aura was thrown back into her soul for a long time. That is to say, all the occult knowledge she possessed was to be imprisoned. She was to be isolated as far as the outer world and her occultism were concerned. This happened at the time when Madame Blavatsky might have become really dangerous through the spreading of teachings 
that are among the most interesting of all in the occult movements. But certain Indian occultists now came to know of the affair. These occultists, for their part, tended strongly toward the left. Their prime interest was to turn the occultism that could be given to the world through Madame Blavatsky in a direction where it could influence the world in line with their special aims. Through the efforts of these Indian occultists, who were versed in the appropriate practices, she was released from this imprisonment within her aura. She was free once again and could now use her spiritual faculties in the right way. From this you get an idea of what had taken place in this soul and of what combination of factors all that came into the world through HPB was composed. But because certain Indian occultists had gained the merit of freeing her from her imprisonment, they had her in their power in a certain respect, and there was simply no possibility of preventing them from using her to send out into the world the part of occultism that suited their purposes. So something very remarkable was, in quotes, arranged, if I may use a clumsy word. What was arranged may be put somewhat as follows. The Indian occultists wanted to assert their own special aims in opposition to those of the others. For this they made use of Madame Blavatsky. She was given instructions to place herself under a certain influence, for in her case the mediumistic state always had to be induced from outside. This made it possible to bring all kinds of things into the world through her. About this time she came to be associated with a person who from the beginning had really no directly theosophical interests, but did have a splendid talent for organization, namely Colonel Alcott. I cannot say for certain, but I surmise that there had already been some kind of association at the time when Blavatsky belonged to the American Lodge. Then, under the mask, as it were, of an earlier individuality, there appeared in the field of Blavatsky's spiritual vision a personality who was essentially the vehicle of what they wanted to launch into the world from India. Some of you may know that in his book titled People from the Other World, Colonel Alcott had written a great deal about this personality who now appeared in Madame Blavatsky's field division behind the mask of an earlier individuality designated as Mahatma Kuthumi. You know perhaps that Colonel Alcott has written a very great deal about this Mahatma Kuthumi. Among other things, he wrote that in 1874, this Mahatma Kuthumi had declared which individuality was living in him. He indicated that this individuality was John King by name, a powerful sea pirate of the 17th century. All this is to be found in Alcott's book titled People from the Other World. In the Mahatma Kuthumi, therefore, we have to do with the spirit of a bold sea pirate of the 17th century, who then in the 19th century was involved in significant manifestations made with the help of Madame Blavatsky and others. He brought teacups from some distance away. He let all kinds of records be produced from the coffin of Madame Blavatsky's father, and so forth. 
from Colonel Alcott's account, therefore we must assume that these were deeds of the bold pirate of the 17th century. Now, Colonel Alcott speaks about this John King in a remarkable way. He suggests that perhaps we are dealing here not with the spirit of a pirate, but with the creation of an order that while depending for its results upon unseen agents, exists among physical men. According to this account, Kuthumi might have been a member of an order engaged in practices such as I have described, whose results were to be communicated to the world through H.P. Blavatsky. But, of course, all this was bound up with all kinds of special interests, namely that a specifically Indian teaching should be spread in the world. This was approximately the situation in the 1870s. We, therefore, have evidence of very significant events that must be seen in a single framework when we are considering the whole course of events in the occult movement. It was this same John King who, by, in quotes, precipitation, produced Sinnott's books, first title, The Occult World, and then especially titled Esoteric Buddhism. Esoteric Buddhism came into my hands very shortly after publication, a few weeks in fact, and I could see from it that efforts were being made, especially from a certain quarter, to give an entirely materialistic form to the spiritual teachings. If you studied esoteric Buddhism from the insight, with the insight you have acquired in the course of time, you would be astonished at the materialistic forms in which facts are presented there. It is materialism in its very worst form. The spiritual world is presented in an entirely materialistic way. None who get hold of this book can shake themselves free from materialism. The subject is subtle, but in Sinnott's book you cannot get away from materialism, however lofty the heights to which it purports to carry you. And so those who were Madame Blavatsky's spiritual, in quotes, bread-givers, forgive the materialistic analogy, not only had special aims connected with Indian interests, but they also made trenchant concessions to the materialistic spirit of the age. And the influence that Sinnott's book had upon very large numbers of people shows how correctly they had speculated. I have met scientists who were delighted with this book because everything fitted in with their stock in trade and yet they were able to conceive of the existence of a spiritual world. The book satisfied all the demands of materialism, and yet made it possible to meet the need for a spiritual world and to acknowledge its existence. You know the further unfolding of these events. H. P. Blavatsky wrote titled The Secret Doctrine in the 1880s, and in 1891 she died. The Secret Doctrine is written in the same style as Esoteric Buddhism, except that it corrects certain gross errors that any occultist could at once have corrected. I have often spoken about the peculiar features of Blavatsky's book and need not go into the matter again now. Then, on the basis of what had come about in this way, the Theosophical Society was founded. Fundamentally speaking, it retained its Indian trend, Although no longer with the intensity that had prevailed under the influence of John King, the Indian trend persisted. 
What I have now described to you was, as it were, a new path that made great concessions to the materialism of the age, but was, nevertheless, intended to show humanity that a spiritual world, as well as the outer material world, must be taken into account. Many details should be added to what I have now said, but time is too short. I will now show you briefly how our spiritual scientific movement took its place in this already existing movement. You know that we founded the German section of the Theosophical Society in October 1902. In the winters of both 1900 and 1901, I had given lectures in Berlin that may be called Theosophical, for they were held in the circle and at the invitation of the Berlin Theosophists. The first lectures ultimately became the book now called titled Mystics After Modernism. These lectures were given to a circle of members of the Theosophical Society. I myself was not then a member. Remember that at the beginning we were working with a teaching that was already widespread and had led numbers of people to turn their minds to the spiritual world. All over the world there were people who to a certain extent were ready and who wanted to know something about the spiritual world. They knew nothing of the things I have told you today, of course, but they had a genuine longing for the spiritual world. Therefore they joined the movement where this longing could be satisfied. In this movement, then, one could find people whose hearts were longing for knowledge of the spiritual world. It can, be tru- it can truly be said that there was a demand, even as I could show a public demand, that I speak about the aim and purpose of theosophy. It was not a matter of arbitrary choice, but, as the saying goes, a clear call of karma. In the winter of 1900-1901 I gave the lectures on mysticism, and in that of 0102, those dealing with the Greek and Egyptian mysteries in rather greater detail. The lectures were subsequently printed in the book titled Christianity as Mystical Fact, which was published in the summer of 1902. The greater part of titled Mystics after Modernism was immediately translated into English before I was a member of the Theosophical Society. I could tell you much more of importance, but time does not permit it now. One thing, however, I must add. There's an ellipsis. So in 1901, 1902, I gave the lectures that became Christianity as Mystical Fact. Frau Dr. Steiner attended these lectures. She had also heard the lecture I had given in the Theosophical Society during the winter of 1900 on Gustav Theodor Fechner. It was a special lecture, not forming part of the other series. Frau Dr. Steiner had, therefore, already been present at some of the lectures I gave during that time. It would be interesting to relate a few details here, but these may be omitted. They merely add a little color to the incident. If necessary, they can be told on another occasion. After having been away for a time, Frau Dr. Steiner returned to Berlin from Russia in the autumn and with an acquaintance of Countess Brockdorf was present at the second course of lectures given in the winter of 1901-1902. After one of the lectures on the Greek mysteries, this acquaintance came up to talk to me. 
This lady subsequently became a more and more fanatical adherent of the Theosophical Society. Later she was given a high position in the order founded to wait for the second coming of Christ. At the time of which I am speaking, she came to me, and adopting the air of a really profound initiate of the Theosophical Society, about to give evidence of her initiation, said, quote, You have spoken of mysteries, but they are still in existence. There are still secret societies. Are you aware of that? Close quote. After another lecture on the same subject, she came to me again and said, quote, One sees that you still remember quite well what you were taught when you were in the Greek mysteries. Close quote. This is something that carried a little farther, borders on a chapter deserving the title of quote, Mystical Eccentricities. Close quote. Exclamation mark. In the autumn of 1901, this lady organized a tea party. Frau Dr. Steiner always speaks of it as the chrysanthemum tea because there were so many chrysanthemums in the room. The invitation came from this acquaintance of Countess Brockdorf, and I often thought that she wanted, well, I don't quite know what it was. The day chosen for the founding of the Theosophical Society was one of special importance for this lady. She may have wanted to enlist me as a co-worker on her own lines, for she put out feelers and was often very persistent. But nothing of any account came of it. I should like, however, to relate a conversation between Frau Dr. Steiner and me that took place in the autumn of 1901 on the occasion of that chrysanthemum tea. She asked me whether it was not urgently necessary to call to life a spiritual scientific movement in Europe. In the course of the conversation, I said in unambiguous terms, quote, certainly it is necessary to call such a movement to life, but I will ally myself only with a movement that is connected exclusively with Western occultism and cultivates its development, close quote. And I also said that such a movement must link to Plato, to Goethe, and so forth. I indicated the whole program that was then actually carried out. In this program, there was no place for unhealthy activities, but naturally a few people with such tendencies came. They were people who were influenced by the movement of which I have spoken. But from the conversation quoted at the beginning of this lecture that I had with a member of the English Theosophical Society, you will see that a complete rejection of everything in the nature of mediumship and atavism was implicit in this program. The path we have been following for long years was adopted with full consciousness. Although elements of mediumistic and atavistic clairvoyance have not been absent, there has been no deviation from this path, and it has led to our present position. I had, of course, to rely on finding people within the theosophical movement who desired and were able to recognize thoroughly healthy methods of work. The invariable procedure of those who did not desire a movement in which a healthy and strict sense of scientific responsibility prevails has been to misrepresent the aim we have been pursuing. This they have done to suit their own ends. The very history of our movement affords abundant evidence that there has been no drawing back from penetrating into the highest spiritual worlds. On the other hand, what cannot be attained by a healthy method for entering the spiritual worlds, has been strictly rejected. Those who recognize this 
and who follow the history of the movement do not need to take it as a mere assurance, for it is evident from the whole nature of the work that has been going on for years. We have been able to go very, very much further in genuine investigation of the spiritual world than has ever been possible for the Theosophical Society. But we take the sure, not the unsure paths. This may be said candidly and freely. I have always refused to have anything to do with forms of antiquated occultism, with any brotherhoods or communities of that kind in the domain of esotericism. And it was only under the guarantee of complete independence that I worked for a time in a certain connection with the Theosophical Society and its esoteric procedures, but never in the direction toward which it was heading. Already by the year 1907, everything really esoteric had completely vanished from the Theosophical Society, and later happenings are sufficiently well known to you. It, is also, it has also happened that occult brotherhoods made proposals to me of one kind or another. A certain highly respected occult brotherhood suggested to me that I should participate in the spreading of a kind of occultism calling itself Rosicrucian, but I left the proposal unanswered, although it came from a much respected occult movement. I say this in order to show that we ourselves are following an independent path suited to the needs of the present age, and that we inevitably regard unhealthy elements as being undesirable in the extreme. The end of Lecture 10